Good evening and welcome to WDIY teen segment Connect. I'm Prithish Kathari, your host this evening, and tonight we will be talking about climate change and energy transition with our guest, Mr. John Cerucci. Mr. Cerucci is a research professor and chief engineer at Arizona State University's Center for Negative Carbon Emissions and prior to that worked for Air Products and received his BS and MS in Chemical Engineering from Penn State and Lehigh University. Mr. Cerucci currently serves on the AICHE Foundation Board of Trustees and co-chairs the AICHE Global Societal Initiatives Committee. He is also a founder of the Lehigh Valley Professional Chapter of Engineers Without Borders. I first met Mr. Cerucci when he visited my high school to talk about climate change to our science classes and thought that this was such an important topic to bring to WDIY since this segment focuses on promoting awareness of community and global challenges. So without further ado, Mr. Cerucci, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure to be here. So to put things in context, can you begin by describing exactly what climate change is? What are the mechanisms? How do humans contribute? And why is it such a hot topic of discussion in environmental policy these days? Okay, well, let's dive right into that. Um, First of all, I have to say I'm not a climate scientist. So I look critically at what others with the right expertise have to say, but I rely heavily on them to define the problem. I'm an engineer. I work on solving problems. There used to be a a lot more carbon dioxide in our atmosphere for hundreds of millions of years. Uh, Plants and animals removed it biologically, and that's resulted in our vast fossil fuel reserves. And now over the last few hundred years, we've been burning those fuels and we're putting the CO2 back into the atmosphere. So the problem is we're putting it back in about a million times faster than it first came out. And it's, it's pretty evident that the atmospheric CO2 carbon dioxide concentrations are increasing. They've gone up about 25% in my lifetime. And it seems rather obvious also that that corresponds uh, nearly quantitatively with our carbon emissions from burning fuels. So carbon dioxide in the atmosphere isn't a bad thing. Water and CO2 are necessary to keep our planet warm and support life without them absorbing some of the solar radiation and retaining it in our atmosphere, this would be a a cold, icy place to live, uninhabitable. The thing is, we're changing the chemistry of the atmosphere rather quickly by putting carbon dioxide back into it, along with some other gases like methane. So we might expect some consequences. Absolutely. So it's clearly a very complicated issue that is growing in severity every day. But how did you become interested and involved in climate change mitigation? Can you describe a little about your career track? Yeah, sure. So I've spent most of my career in industry. Uh, I've been working here out of the Lehigh Valley at Air Products for a long time. I've enjoyed working with a lot of terrific people there that have taught me a lot of things. And most of my professional career has been focused on developing and designing new processes. That conveniently included learning a good bit about how to separate gases. And now I've been retired from industry for five years, and I'm working with a very different sort of team at Arizona State University, and we're developing processes to separate carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So like you mentioned, you are a chemical engineer. What kind of roles do chemical engineers specifically play in combating climate change? It seems as though they cover a pretty broad range of initiatives. Yeah. Chemical engineers are sort of like the MacGyvers of the the engineering disciplines just because of our training and the breadth of things that we work on. A chemical engineer is sort of a cross between a a physicist, an architect, and an accountant. And we apply physical sciences to 
manage how energy and materials interact and, and use that to solve problems and build things. And mostly, chemical engineers look at how things work as a system. So that makes us well qualified to work in many different fields. I have colleagues that are doctors and lawyers and astronauts, among other things. It also helps us work alongside a broad range of other disciplines to solve large, hairy problems like combating climate change, which does require many, many disciplines, including the social disciplines. So I think that all goes together. But chemis, you know, have a large tool chest of experience and training that allows them to work on complicated problems like this alongside other disciplines. Yeah, and that was one of the things that really stood out to me during your presentation at my school was just the diversity of roles that chemical engineers can take on. And I guess that means that they can work in various settings, and you in particular have worked both in industry and academic settings. So I wanted to ask, what are the benefits of one over the other? What are some challenges working in these environments? And what have both experiences taught you with regard to tackling this climate change issue? You know, throughout my career... I've really enjoyed dealing with this contradiction between the need for a commercial incentive to build things which are profitable in the short term versus the requirement to invest the time and resources to innovate around making future things a lot better. In new product development, there's this thing called the valley of death, and it's that, that time period where we might need to spend a lot of money without any financial return developing some big idea with a lot of uncertainty and hope that it's going to, some future time, be valuable to us. So academia has the patience to explore and develop the foundational science behind big ideas. And industry does a real good job of channeling market forces to produce things that are technical and economically sustainable. That makes for a good collaboration and not just one or the other, but working together, industry and academia kind of bring the best of both worlds together to tackle difficult, challenging problems, certainly including climate change mitigation. Right now at Arizona State, we are working very closely with industry partners, including a new startup company called Silicon Kingdom. And so we have that marriage and collaboration of those skills. We have partners that are driven for commercial success and are focused on making things economically sustainable, and we're working on the hard scientific and engineering problems. Yeah, that's wonderful. The coexistence is very important in combating these very large-scale problems. But to now get into the science behind it, so can you explain what are some of the technological solutions to address these greenhouse gas emissions and climate change? I know specifically you work on negative emissions technologies, so could you perhaps go into those and explain why are they important in resolving this issue? Yeah, well, first off, I mean, it's got to be said, there's no silver bullet solution. There's going to be a cadre of different solutions, and the, the, the market and economics will help deselect them. But ultimately, we're going to have to do a number of different things concurrently. So I kind of quickly move away from saying this is the one thing that's going to make everything okay. Unfortunately, that's not the reality. Perhaps the uh, easiest and maybe laziest thing to do is nothing. We can you know, proceed as we've gone down this path and adapt to a new way of living. The convenient thing about that is that we don't have to guess on some future uncertain outcome or model prediction. We will live it and find out what happens and then deal with the consequences. Unfortunately, there's the potential for increasing catastrophic weather events, 
coastlines getting redrawn. We might expect major changes in agriculture, and the most dire consequences are going to be in the developing world where people are already living on the margin. So, you know, it's kind of a bit like changing the oil in your car. I don't really have to do that. I spend money to do that. I could just let it go and probably drive my car for a few years, and maybe nothing would happen before I sell it to somebody else. But on the other hand, my engine might seize up, and, well, the expectation is ultimately that costs a lot more money. That's the view that most people share looking at this. There's contrarian views, but the idea of doing nothing and adapting when we need to is probably the most expensive thing, both financially and perhaps in terms of people's lives. And there's wildly different predictions on the impacts. That's probably the toughest thing to guess. It ranges from, you know, the end of the species on this planet to, uh, oh, so we just have to turn up the air conditioning a little bit. You know, the answer lies somewhere in between, but no doubt there will be global consequential effects. And doing nothing is one way, seems to be the way that we're patterning ourselves right now, but probably the most expensive thing to do. The other thing we can do is put less carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And so the the no-brainer thing, first of all, and this is happening to a large extent and will continue is we reduce our energy intensity by conserving, by making things operate more efficiently. That's easy. That saves money directly and helps reduce emissions. Alternatively, of course, there's a lot of efforts looking at non-fossil fuel energy sources, renewables. There's already been really kind of substantial effects of other things like uh, hydropower and to some extent nuclear, depending on where you are. But in terms of what's changing right now, renewables seem to be really making advances in part because they're becoming extremely economical on an incremental basis, depending on how well the sun, sun is shining, what the price of natural gas is, solar photovoltaic is, is cost competitive and getting less expensive. But these things create additional technical challenges themselves. The sun doesn't always shine. The wind doesn't always blow. And so along with uh, most renewables, we also need to be looking at other technological advances like energy storage at the grid level. So as I said, there's not one solution. It's a combination of things. Another way to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide and other gases we're putting in the atmosphere is to, to catch the CO2 on its way back into the atmosphere, separating on the back end or integrated with fossil fuel combustion processes like power plants and steel mills and cement mills. And then once we do that, we need to store it somewhere. So that's probably the thing we might hear the most about carbon capture and storage as a post-combustion process. And then the third category after you know adaptation or reduction is negative emission. And that's reversing things and taking carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere. There's a number of different ways to consider doing that. Trees do it, and I'm a big fan of trees. We rely on trees and other biological sources to somehow permanently sequester that. And a portion may be sequestered in the soil naturally, or we can promote that in different ways. Another way of advancing biological sources is to use crops and trees as an energy source and attach carbon capture to that. So that lets lets the plants pull the CO2 out of the air and then we catch it on the way back and that's a negative emission process. These biological processes I think are really worthy of development. The issue is scale. We can make a, a dent in 
the problem by doing these things, but there's just not enough land area on the planet to plant enough trees to make a change by itself. Other more scalable concepts around are things like, some of this is a little bit scary from the, the geological engineering standpoint, but ocean fertilization, putting this two-thirds of our planet covered with water and promoting biological growth, algae growth, to capture CO2 from the air into the ocean at a faster rate than it's happening now. And then finally, in the area of negative emissions that we are focusing on is direct air capture, and that is by a, a manufactured process, an artificial tree, directly removing carbon dioxide from the air and then storing it. And as I said, I think ultimately we have to have a combination of solutions and we'll find that combination that ultimately becomes economically sustainable. Yeah, so definitely many viable options that you've just described. Specifically at Arizona State University, what have you been pursuing with your research over the last few years, or what are you working on currently? So our team is working on developing direct air capture technology, DAC, or we call it DAC. And there's about 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the air. That's a very, very small amount. That means for every million molecules, only 400 of them are carbon dioxide. We need to separate that carbon dioxide, concentrate it so that it's nearly 100% pure, and then, then usually compress it up to pressures of more than 100 times atmospheric pressure so that it can be stored somewhere. So I'll just say this. That's really easy to do. Simple engineering problem. We've done it. We can do it again. The, the catch is that it, it's also really expensive. Uh, it requires a lot of expensive equipment, and it requires a lot of energy. Um, I mentioned that chemical engineers are part accountants. If we use too much energy, and that energy comes from fossil fuel-derived sources, electricity or whatnot, then we can actually lose out on that game. So the problem isn't separating the carbon dioxide from there so much. It's doing it inexpensively without consuming too much additional energy. At Arizona State University, we're developing those equipment and technologies that work like artificial trees. And as I said, I'm a big fan of trees, but our trees work about a thousand times faster than real trees. And so we're trying to, in, a, in addition to making those biological processes look a lot better, we're also trying to change some of the paradigms in traditional industrial processes to overcome these energy and equipment cost issues by doing some really unique things, more like nature. For example, we let the wind deliver our feed gas instead of using blowers and compressors, which, which would consume electricity. We're looking at novel materials that bond and release the carbon dioxide without relying on external energy sources to any great extent, using things like moisture swing cycles, where our fuel is water that then is evaporated into the atmosphere. And we're also looking at ways that we can integrate renewable energy, including the integration of energy storage into these systems. So the, these, maybe most importantly, are process-intensive systems that are modular. And the idea is that by mass production, they can become more and more inexpensive. And we overcome not just the energy issue, but also the capital cost issue of equipment. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about the prioritization of research versus commercialization as well as get into how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted climate change and carbon emissions. 
I'm talking with Mr. John Sarucci about climate change and energy transition. I'm Prithish Kathari for Teen Segment Connect. Interested in inspiring and informing future generations through WDIY's programming? A gift through your will, retirement plan, or estate plan is a wonderful legacy to leave to those that will need a trusted place to hear what's going on in the world. For information about naming WDIY as a beneficiary, please call 610-694-8100 or visit WDIY.org forward slash legacy. For program support on WDIY, we thank the Pocono Cheesecake Factory. Now offering curbside pickup of a variety of cheesecake, cookies, pastries, and gourmet treats. For 35 years, helping schools, clubs, and other nonprofit organizations throughout the Lehigh Valley and Northeast Pennsylvania achieve their fundraising goals. The Pocono Cheesecake Factory. Since 1985, love at first bite. For more information, PoconoCheesecake.com. back. I'm Prithish Kathari, your host this evening for Teen Segment Connect, talking to Mr. John Sarucci about climate change and mitigation, as well as energy transition. So getting back to what we were talking about, in addition to these direct air capture processes you've talked about, and I myself have read a lot about promising technologies being developed in labs or by startups that aim to harness alternative energy and prevent greenhouse gas emissions, But how quickly can this tech development through research be scaled to commercial use? And I guess this begs the following question of prioritization. In your opinion, should we be regulating the effects of existing energy industry or finance these alternative energy source developments? Well, you know, I need to pay someone to take my trash away. And many of us pay our municipalities for our water use and sewage processing. These are costs to support our quality of life. The price we pay for all goods and services includes the costs that go into creating them. Fossil fuels are, are enormously useful. They, they are really effective means to concentrate and store energy and move it around where we need it. Uh, we've enjoyed and benefited from their use all of our lives, and uh, we're going to continue to do so for some time in the future. So part of that cost, part of the, the cost of that benefit is cleaning up afterwards. That includes the CO2 emissions past present, and future. Now, I'll be the first to say I'm not a policy geek, So, but there has to be some sort of carbon economy for anything to happen. The economic mechanism to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions has to create financial incentives, and that way market forces can take over, and that promotes technological advances, and it also drives costs downwards. The unit cost penalty to use or avoid fossil fuels can actually be quite modest. However, the issue is the scale of change is enormous, and we just really don't have that much time. So I guess I'm maybe dodging your question a little bit by saying I'm kind of lazy and I'm just doing the easy part, and that is building the technical solutions. 
but they only really work if we also have the policy and the social will to make change. That's where things have to start. Absolutely. I think you've hit the crux of it, that it's not only about the technology, it's also about how we can develop this larger scale through policy. So as I was browsing what initiatives were being taken to limit carbon emissions, I found that many Fortune 500 companies have released carbon decarbonization goals. And I wanted to ask your opinion, how realistic do you think these goals are? And how do you believe these goals and projections in general about carbon emissions have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I mean, we're seeing a response to these companies, which are for-profit businesses that are, you know, taking a message from their stakeholders, their customers, their shareholders, that they have to make some changes. And so companies work that way. And so uh, I, I think it's a positive sign. And I spoke earlier about that valley of death that we have to get across in terms of technological advancement. If there is incentive, even if it's modest and it really is relative to the scale of things that have to happen, what it can do is drive things forward to advance our systems. That includes the engineering and science that has to happen, but also the thinking that has to go into policy around this. So that's the positive thing about it. It is, despite, you know, all the hype, uh, the actual things that are happening are relatively modest compared to what needs to happen. But I'm encouraged by the positive start. COVID-19 maybe is a, an interesting social experiment in how the world responds to a crisis. In the short term, you know, interestingly, it seems to have provided a little bit of reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. But, you know, economic recession is definitely the wrong way to go about doing that. Maybe it is also slowing down some of the essential projects and programs that have to take place. I think in the long term, though, it's largely an independent problem. Some people would argue there's some causality. I I have no ability to wade, wade into that issue. But I think they're largely independent problems. I do think, though, that our response and I guess the variety of response to COVID-19 gives some insights on how people react to uh, worldwide problems. It's uh, so far maybe not really encouraging on how fast we can get our uh, uniform response together in dealing with the climate change, but I think there are some lessons to be learned here. Absolutely. And just getting more on the topic of community and industry-based action, as recently as today, presidential candidate Joe Biden has talked about some decarbonization or energy transition policy that he would like to see if elected. And so this begs the question, what is the right balance, in your opinion, between industry-based action and community-based action? What advancements would you like to see being made in both sectors? Well, I don't see them as independent and separate things. I, I actually think that I mentioned industry serves its stakeholders, and and that's its customers and shareholders. And and so as consumers, we drive those changes. And so I think that's where a change has to happen. Our politicians listen to us and try to get behind uh, where they think they're going to be successful in representing their constituency. And industry is going to do the same. So it has to really start with the will of the people, and uh, that's how change happens. Uh, Unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't happen until there's some pain level. I've I've learned that about change management. 
we're seeing some pain right now. I hopefully, hopefully it doesn't have to get too painful before we really start affecting those changes. But again, I think that community-based action and industry-based action are coupled together, and industry follows the lead on what its customers want. Right. And I just want to pick up on that. You said, you know, the will of the people can help combat or uh, mitigate some of the trends we've been seeing. So what role does promoting awareness to the public about climate change have in bringing about habit or uses change? For example, after your presentation at my school, I asked many peers if they knew about the report that you cited where, you know, they claimed that in only 12 years, the Earth's temperature will rise by 1.5 degrees Celsius. And they called it, quote unquote, a point of no return. And it's incredible to know that the severity of such a problem is going kind of under-acknowledged. So what role does promoting that awareness have in bringing about a social change? We are besieged with information these days. Uh, We have more access to more information than ever before in, in the history of mankind. And so there's some positive aspects to that, but it makes it very, very hard to weed through that and make sense of, of reality and what, uh, what we really need to know to form our own positions on things. My message to, to you when we first met at your school and, and is now is the same. It's not to uh, just believe some guy like me talking on the radio, but to be inquisitive and be skeptical. If the issue is important, and this is, we have to form our own positions based on investigation and critical thinking, and particularly be wary of collective wisdom from social media. The worst and most disingenuous kind of misinformation is cherry-picked truths. And so that's why, again, if, if it's important, you have to dig in on your own. I'm not exactly sure how to encourage people to do that, but that's my message And I really would hope people do their own research with an open mind and challenge your sources. You have to peel back layers. I most enjoy reading things that are contrary to my view because that's where I can learn something or perhaps discover something new. And that would be a message to anyone else. Yes, that's a very excellent point just about in general informing yourself about an issue and specifically the cherry-picked truths is what we see a lot in social media these days. So I think that's a very good point. But now to move away a little bit from the science and the climate change technology part, I understand that you're also involved in humanitarian endeavors in Sierra Leone and the Dominican Republic. Can you tell us what inspired this project and what its goals are? About 10 years ago, a group of us here in the Lehigh Valley formed a chapter of Engineers Without Borders. And our team is actually made up of engineers, but also tradespeople and medical practitioners and teacher, teachers and, uh, and people with social skills. Uh, not that engineers don't have social skills, but we need some help. And, and we've been working with, uh, well, first of all, a community in Sierra Leone in West Africa we worked on numerous projects rebuilding the infrastructure for a large rural school there. That included integrating a water system and sanitation capabilities and, and, and energy systems using renewable energy. Now, in that same community, we're working with a hospital. We had a, two large teams that traveled there earlier this year working on construction work on buildings that would house visiting doctors and nurses at a a hospital in that community. We've also, concurrent with that, been working with a community in the Dominican Republic, building water systems for an agricultural community. So um, 
it's been satisfying to be able to bring some of our skills together and also work with a great team of people on these types of things. Very, very personally fulfilling for me. I would encourage anyone who is interested in getting involved or supporting our work to find out more about Engineers Without Borders. Our, our website here in the Lehigh Valley is ewb-lvp.com. So check it out if you're interested in learning more. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Sarushi. This has been incredibly insightful and very inspiring with your work that you've just described. Thanks for making it so simple. I, I would have liked to enjoy, to visit your studio sometime. Maybe I'll get to do that yet, but uh, this was convenient. Well, it's nice talking with you. Thank you so much. So as Mr. Sarucci mentioned, you can find his websites about Engineers Without Borders, as well as some of the research he's conducting online. Thank you for listening to Teen Segment Connect on WDIY. This is Pratish Kathari with my guest, Mr. John Sarucci.